This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Mark 10, we are getting back to marching through the gospel of Mark this morning. I took a break as we walked through Nehemiah uh, together, and uh, we are going to be back in Mark for a couple of weeks uh, and cover the first part of chapter 10 today, and then the second part of chapter 10 next week, and then it's going to be time to start thinking about Thanksgiving and Christmas. Hard to believe, isn't it? It's amazing. Um, but we're going to do some messages with sort of Thanksgiving themes and, and Christmas Advent uh, themes, and then we're going to get back to Mark 11 at the beginning of the year, which is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we will we'll be in Mark through Easter Sunday and finish up with the resurrection of our, our Savior. So let's look at chapter 10 today, and we're going to look at 27 verses today, and I am going to cover them all. I'm not going to read them all here at the beginning. I'm just going to read the first verse of chapter 10, and then we're going to just be walking through the rest during the course of the, the message. But, but this is a passage about discipleship, as so much of Mark is, and, and, it, and it answers the question, what does Jesus say about marriage, children, and possessions? He's talking about those three things. What does it mean to follow Jesus in those three areas? So let's look at Mark chapter 10. And verse 1, he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Now let's stop right there because this is very significant. The last time that we were in Mark, you remember that Jesus had been in the northern part of the country, up in Caesarea Philippi. He then comes down to sort of his, his home base of operations, which was, was Galilee, but now Jesus has gone further south to Judea, and he's never going to go north again. Why? Because he's headed to Jerusalem, to the Passion, to the cross. And so Jesus, at this point, has moved south into Judea. And it says the crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your word would teach us today, that you would speak to us by the power of your spirit, speak to us about marriage, speak to us about what your word says about children and being cultivating a child-likeness as disciples, and teach us what your word says about possessions, because we want you and you alone to be our treasure. And so we ask that your spirit would work now in our lives, that, that uh, anything that could distract would be taken away, because we desire now to meet with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I don't know if any of the... Uh, Husbands here can relate to this, but 
you know, when, when I go grocery shopping, if, if I go with Melissa, everything's fine. Because, I mean, I kind of enjoy it. I mean, it's, it's a time for us to kind of hang out together, and she knows where everything in the store is, and so the pressure, there's no pressure on me. You know, I'm just kind of along for the ride, and it's kind of, you know, it's just kind of fun being together. I, I, I don't mind that at all. But when she gives me a list and sends me off solo to the grocery store, and especially if it's a store with any size to it, uh, then I'm, I'm feeling stressed from the moment that I walk in the parking lot because unlike my wife, I can't just like walk directly to where stuff is. I've got to find the right aisle first, which is a process. And then even once I find the right aisle, it's too many choices. I mean, like even if she's told me that we need toothpaste or something, okay, there's like 27 different kinds of crest. And so I'm just standing there and I'm, I'm feeling paralyzed because my eyes are just being assaulted by all these choices. 53, I looked these things up this week, 53 different kinds of Campbell's soup. It's not just a matter of, you know, just... Uh, you know, I, I, or, or uh, get some, uh, some cereal, Cheerios. It's not a matter anymore of just kind of, you know, going to big, uh, you know, yellow box of Cheerios. So there's original, honey nut, honey nut medley crunch, apple cinnamon, banana nut, frosted, chocolate, multigrain, multigrain peanut butter, dulce de leche, and cinnamon burst. So... It's going to be a run on Cheerios this week in the, in the grocery store. Or laundry detergent. That's my, that's my least favorite. I mean, that aisle, I can't even, I mean, that's completely out of my realm of knowledge. And there's like, you know, 15 different kinds of Tide or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm just, I, I, I stand there and I'm, I, I just feel like I'm, I, just, it's, just too, it's just too much. It's too busy. It's, just, it's, just, it's too, many, too many choices. I have a hard enough time locating stuff in the kitchen or the pantry or the refrigerator when stuff is right there in front of me and I'm around it every day and Melissa can just go grab it and she reminds me that it was right in front of me. But I, I don't know. It's just some kind of a block that I, that I have. But... Too many choices in the grocery store. But when it comes to discipleship to Jesus, that, that's not the issue. That's never the issue. It's always, it's simple, it's clear, it's not easy. Sometimes it's really hard. But it is simple and clear because Jesus just says, follow me. Just follow me. That's the definition of a disciple. And so in these verses, Jesus is teaching about what it means to follow him, to be his disciple in these three areas. And the first area that he is going to address is marriage. So he talks, first of all, about discipleship and marriage. Let's look at verses 2 through 4. And Pharisees came up and, in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? 
They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, in order to understand what's going on here, you have to understand something about Jewish attitudes toward divorce in the first century because there were two schools of thought. They were both associated with famous rabbis. The school of Shammai believed that it was only permissible in cases of adultery. But the school of Rabbi Hillel was very permissive about divorce, and it was totally stacked in favor of men. And so in that school of thinking, a man could literally divorce his wife for, for any and every reason. If he thought that the dishes were dirty, this is literally in one of their writings, that the dishes were, 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 were dirty. If he simply found another woman more attractive, I mean, anything, any, any reason, uh, he, he, he could simply um, uh, uh, do away with his, with his wife, with, the, with the, the, the marriage. Now, it's very clear which school of thought these particular guys that approached Jesus on this day were coming from. And you can hear it in, their, in what they say in verse 4, right? Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, that was a lie. They were twisting the Scripture to justify their own behavior, and Jesus calls them on it in verse 5. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Now, what commandment is Jesus talking about? Well, the commandment is in Deuteronomy. It's in Deuteronomy 24. And actually, the commandment was intended to limit divorce. It was meant to make it harder on 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 men to, to simply uh, look at the marriage and look at their wives as, as disposable and to make it somewhat harder for, on them to, to get the divorce uh, because they had to put it in writing. And so the, the law was intended to, to limit divorce, but they had flipped it upside down and they were using the very law that God had intended to limit divorce they were using it as a license for easy divorce and for just disposing of their uh, wives. And so Jesus calls them on that. And not only that, but Jesus points out that the only reason that there had to be a law regarding divorce to begin with was due to the hardness of their hearts because it was not a part of God's original Design. And what is that original design? Well, Jesus tells us about it in verses 6 through 9. He says, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. You see the difference here? 
they want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage. They want to talk about getting out of marriage. Jesus wants to talk about godly marriage. They are looking at marriage as just sort of a human contract that they can just sort of, you know, abrogate it at will. Jesus says that marriage is not a human contract, but a divine covenant. They are looking at marriage as something that was a decision that they made, something that they did, and they can simply undo. But what does Jesus say? Jesus goes back to Genesis, and he says in verse 9, what therefore God has joined together. Let not man separate. Now, later, when he's alone with his disciples, they're going to ask him about this because they know that what they're hearing is a much higher standard than the culture that they've been raised in. And what does Jesus do? Instead of soft-pedaling it, Jesus doubles down on it. Verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her, and if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So a couple of things here. We always have to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And we know that Jesus did state that there were legitimate biblical reasons for divorce in certain cases. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 and verse 32, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, in Matthew 19 and verse 9, Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. In 1 Corinthians 7:15, Paul adds desertion to that. He says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. So there are biblical reasons for divorce in certain cases. Um, and, uh, and even then, even, even in situations like that where there has been sexual immorality or desertion we should never look at divorce as the first option it's always the last option the first option should always be that we seek repentance we seek for the person who is in sin to see the errors of their ways and to humble themselves and and repent so that the marriage can be restored and the family can be kept together, but there are, there are situations where 
that does not happen and there is no repentance. And, and Jesus makes it clear that in such situations that the person who has been sinned against is not bound. There certainly uh, in our culture uh, as well situations of physical abuse uh, in marriage, uh, situations where illegal things are happening, where uh, a spouse is involved in some kind of uh, illegal activity or where there's abuse, physical abuse that, that, that's going on. And of course, you know, there are a, a plethora of verses that would make it clear that, that, that those are just not situations that a child of God should be living in. And they're certainly not situations that children should be living in or be raised in. And so, you know, we have to, we have to, but we have to let the Word of God uh, guide these things. Um, But what about situations, okay, where um, there's, you know, if there's, there's a, you may say there's a divorce in my background, um, there was sin that was involved, sin on my part. Um, I, later on, I became a Christian, or you know, God, God just convicted me of my sin, but it was too late for the marriage to be restored. What about that? God treats that sin as He does any other sin. Okay? Every single one of us in this room today has a huge record of sin on our account. At the heart of the gospel is the fact that that record of our sin debt was nailed to a cross. And so it is under the blood of Christ like any other sin. Jesus does not take the the sin of, of unbiblical divorce and elevate it to a separate category of sin so that Christians who are divorced should be treated as, you know, sort of second-class Christians. That's just not biblical. That's just not part of the gospel. Um, and I'm, I'm so thankful, you know, that this church doesn't, doesn't do that because, um, yes, it's sin, it's terrible sin, at the heart of so many of the sicknesses in our culture is the breakup of the family. But God does not take you know, one sin and put it in a separate category and attach a stigma to people who have committed that certain sin. That's just not consistent with the, the gospel. And so we need to be very clear about that as, as well. The thing for you to do, um, you know, if, you, if that's the situation, let's say you're, you're married again. Okay, Jesus here is not teaching that you're living in a perpetual state of adultery. That's not what's meant here. Um, what he wants you to do now is to focus on the marriage that you have. <laughs> if you're remarried, you need to focus on building a godly marriage. And I say building because marriage takes work. Hard, hard work and commitment. And listen, short of the biblical reasons that we mentioned, 
divorce should not even be in your vocabulary. Because if we have some sort of a plan B that's sitting out there, it's it's the nature of our flesh to take that. Because marriage can be so hard. I've been a pastor now for almost two and a half decades. And just in my experience, through that period of time, I believe that most marriages, I won't say all, but most, most marriages go through times that are so hard and so excruciatingly painful that the only thing that gets the couple through it is the commitment that they made before God. Because they go through periods in the marriage when the feelings are just simply not there. There may be feelings all right, but they're hostile feelings. Okay? Um, And the only thing that, that gets you through is just the sheer commitment that you made. But what that does is, if you take divorce off the table, it forces you to work through it. And it takes a lot of forgiveness. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of coming to terms, each one of us, with the fact that each one of us is dealing with sin issues in our lives. And, and what it does is, it, if, we, if we'll stay together and humble ourselves and do the hard work and, and let the healing take place over time, then we can emerge in a deeper, more solid place in the marriage than we were before. Um, and not only that, but we can grow as Christians in, in a way that we haven't before. Because marriage is like a living laboratory for our sanctification. Um, in fact, the, the things in your marriage that are the most difficult, the things in your marriage that just cause the, the, the hardest things that you deal with, here's what you have to understand. Those things are not outside of God's plan. They are a part of His plan both for your marriage and for your growth as a Christian. So in marriage, we have the opportunity to live out the gospel and to press deeper into the gospel. Marriage provides us with an opportunity to forgive because we have been forgiven. Marriage provides us with an opportunity to to love and accept someone who is less than perfect because Jesus loved and accepted us as far less than perfect. Marriage provides us with an opportunity to serve rather than to be served because Jesus came not to be served but to serve. It provides an opportunity uh, for us to, uh, to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. How do we grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control? Trying to live together and do, do life as husband and wife, it, it helps us to grow in all of those areas because we get tested in all of those areas. 
It's an opportunity to put someone else and their needs above your own because Christ put us and our needs above his own. And it's an opportunity to sacrifice and to lay down our lives for one another. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, that is countercultural. It was countercultural in the first century. That was not the way that first century Jews viewed marriage. It was not the way that first century Gentiles viewed marriage. And it's certainly not the way that most 21st century Americans view marriage. But it is discipleship and marriage. Now, it's probably no accident that Jesus moves from marriage to children because marriage provides the context for children to be raised. So let's look at that. Discipleship and children. Verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So we talked about this a few weeks ago. But in, in modern times, it's, it's, the, it's just the right, it's viewed as the right thing to do to be like super sweet and affectionate to little kids. That was not the case in the first century. Childhood, like we're talking like from, you know, from little kids, infants through like 13, that period of time was viewed as just sort of a, uh, an unavoidable interim between birth and young adulthood. Um, and, and, and little kids were sort of persona non grata. They were, they, there was just not, there was not this sort of level of, of affection, but there was in Jesus. Verse 16. It says, And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. You see this throughout the gospel. Jesus demonstrating this, this tender, loving affection with little children. That would absolutely have stood out in that culture. It was, it was not common. But it was the way that Jesus treated little children. And that's the model for the way that we should treat little children. So thank, It was awesome to see those kids up here a while ago. I don't, I don't remember. When I was in Little Children's Choir, I'm not sure if the songs were quite that fun or the theology was quite that deep. That was wonderful. And I'm so thankful for our, our children's ministry here um, and the workers who were involved in it because children are to be valued and, and treated uh, with this kind of, of affection and, and Christ-like love. But the disciples are products of their culture. And so when they see these parents bringing these little kids to Jesus for this blessing, they, sh- they shoo them away. They're rebuking the little kids, rebuking their parents for bringing them. And then what do we see? Jesus rebukes the disciples. Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant 
and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. The word here, indignant in the ESV, means Jesus was really angry. You see Jesus get angry when, when, when people who are weak or vulnerable, um, the poor, the, the people who are vulnerable or weak in some way, little kids would certainly qualify as that. When, when Jesus sees people like that being dissed or treated with injustice, I mean, there's, there's, there's a righteous anger. And, 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 and he's, he's, he's mad with the disciples for their attitude. And he not only rebukes them for it, but then he goes on to say here, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What does he mean by that? There are some people who look at this and they say, well, he's talking about the quality of innocence. You know, Jesus is saying that these children are sort of like... um, you know, to such, when he says to such belong the kingdom of God, he's talking about a certain innocent quality in kids. Well, you know, those of you who are parents here know that little kids are super sweet, um, but they're not innocent, right? You don't have to teach them how to sin. You have to teach them all kinds of things. You don't have to teach them how to sin. It comes very naturally to all of us. So little kids are not innocent. It's really not that he's talking about. They are completely dependent on their parents. That's what he's talking about. Little kids are totally dependent on their parents. And that's what Jesus is saying that we should be like. That even as adults, that we should seek to have dependence upon God instead of defaulting to our to self-reliance, which is what we naturally do, just seeking to do life on our own, self-reliant, deal with all of our problems on our own, figure it out ourselves. Instead of doing life like that, which is the, our natural way to do it with our sinful nature, we have to unlearn that as Christians and learn day by day, moment by moment, issue by issue, to depend upon our Father the way that a little child depends upon his or her parent. In fact, Jesus says we can't even become a Christian without humbling ourselves in that way. Verse 15. He says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. In order to be saved, we have to declare spiritual bankruptcy. We have to hurl ourselves totally on the mercy of God. We have to confess that we cannot save ourselves, that we are guilty sinners in need of a Savior, and and hurl ourselves totally on the mercy of the Savior and what He has done for us in the Gospel. And then, as Christians, to grow in the Christian life, 
It's a daily battle to forsake self-reliance and to learn to depend on God. Discipleship and children. Third, discipleship and possessions. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question. Because this guy is thinking about eternal realities. And Jesus, as he so often did in conversation with people, draws him out. Verses 18 and following. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Now some people read this and they sort of criticize this guy and say, Well, you know, he's just, he's tooting his own horn. You know, he's just kind of, trying to turn in his, his moral report card here and say that he got, he got all, all A's and he's sort of faking it. There's no indication of that. There's every indication that, that this is a guy who truly had sought to live a righteous life. But something is missing. And Jesus knows that there is a barrier that has to come down and there's an idol that has to be smashed verse 21 and Jesus looking at him loved him and said to him you lack one thing go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me now Jesus doesn't tell every person that follows him to do that. He doesn't tell every person he encounters in the Gospels to, to do that, but he tells this guy. Because he knows that in this guy's life, this is the issue. This is, this is the idol that's got to be blown apart for this guy to, to ever become a disciple. And, and see, there's, there's a great irony here, right? Because we just talked about these little kids Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Why? Because they're totally dependent on, on their, their hands are empty. Now we come to a guy whose hands are too full. Way too full. And it says in verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Literally, it says here, his face fell. His, his whole countenance just sunk. And he was filled with grief. The joy just drained out of him, which indicates what? It indicates that he was seeking to derive his joy from his possessions, not from God. And to follow Jesus, Jesus has to be your treasure. not possessions. Jesus makes this perfectly clear. I mean, in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew 6 and, and verse 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, 
For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now again, (laughs) the disciples are hearing things that are way beyond anything that they have previously heard. It's challenging to them. Look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. They had been raised in a culture where they had been taught that possessions were a sign of God's favor and that possession, lots of possessions were an indication that you were living a godly life, kind of like the health and wealth gospel. The prosperity theology teaches this today. Certain guys on TV teach this false gospel that if you're right with God, then the, that you're going to have the more possessions. That, I mean, that's kind of what they had grown up believing. And now Jesus is totally blowing that uh, concept apart. Verses 24 and 25. Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. There have been all kinds of novel interpretations of that verse. Some people have tried to say, well, there's a similarity between the word for uh, camel and rope. There's no textual evidence really of, of, of that. It says camel but, you know, as if you could thread a rope through the eye of a needle, that that would be any easier. As people who have tried to say, well, there was this gate in Jerusalem that was called a needle's eye, and a camel could get through it, but he had to squinch down really low and get on his knees and, 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 and crawl under it. There is no evidence that any such gate ever existed in Jerusalem. There's not even any indication of that fanciful interpretation until like a thousand years after Christ. No, he means camel. He said, well, that's impossible. Yes, that's precisely the point that he's making. Verses 26 and 27. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The whole point that he's making is that the fact that any of us are saved is a miracle. The fact that rich people get saved is a miracle. The fact that poor people get saved is a miracle. The fact that any of us who, apart from Christ, Ephesians 2, 1 says we're dead in trespasses and sins, the fact that any of us get saved is just a miracle of God's grace. It's just God raising us from the dead. Well, guess what? We have a God who specializes in resurrection, right? And he does raise the dead. He does it through the proclamation of the gospel. And by the power of the Spirit, he can take a hard, stony heart and he can melt it and turn it into a heart of flesh. That's the new birth. And it's a miracle every time it happens. And it happens through the proclamation of of the gospel, which we're called to share with people. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of that gospel. We thank you for the fact that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is still at work in our world today. Opening hearts. Shattering barriers. And drawing people to yourself. We pray that you'd help us to be faithful to go forth and to proclaim that gospel. We thank you for the grace that we have received, the grace that is always enough for any situation that we meet as disciples. Help us to depend on you and not ourselves. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here today and you're looking to to Christ for your salvation and you want to go public with that decision in a few moments we want, to, we want to invite you to come if you're here today and God's speaking to you about being a part of this church family then we want to come alongside and, and pray with you and welcome you you be on your way let's stand together as we sing I hope you've been blessed by this message Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father. You are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.